morning Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. He is Isaac Fitzgerald. It's only Wednesday, Lemon. <laughs> <laughs> and you're watching AM to DM. Yeah, so yesterday, huh? <sighs> what happened? What? <laughs> There was so much news. Yeah. I mean, it really it felt like a lot. We were all back at it. We were all back at and it. And you know me. I am on it. Y'all see me on the timeline, and he sees me on the Slack, mm -hmm. and the emails, and all of that. I am on the news, honey. I know what's going on. I do not back away from the news cycle. And I was like, well, I gotta back away. <laughs> <laughs> it was, listen, August, wow. August is over. It clearly, school is back in session, okay? <laughs> I, am, I am one of those people that is like, no, there's three weeks left to summer left. No it doesn't way. end until September. But let me tell you, everybody was on their email yesterday. Everybody was making news yesterday. So much was going down, um, and we're going to tackle a lot of it. A lot, a lot. Yeah. And it, it, I agree. It seems like clearly all of us are like back from Labor Day, mm -hmm. so that, that impacts the news cycle. But Congress is back from its August recess, or whatever you want to call the Senate did. Um, but, you know, it's it's back. They it's are all. they are back, and they are doing it. Because we, we got so many hearings going on. We got Children. so much going on. One of the stories that I saw kind of take over the timeline mm -hmm. yesterday, obviously, was Fred Gutenberg yes. coming up to Kavanaugh. That was a moment. And it was a moment because there was this, like, still, you know, the story kind of came out, and then there was a statement release that it was like, oh, he just didn't notice and security uh -huh. got swept him away. Uh -huh. Then the picture kind of came out, which was incredible yeah. moment captured. And then the video came the video, out. Many videos. And you could just see from all the angles that he certainly heard him. He's, and Fred certainly extended mm -hmm. his hand and Kavanaugh just... Kavanaugh gave him a look, mm -hmm. darling. And here's the thing that, one reason I think that's interesting is that the first day of um, a judicial like confirmation hearing is like, you know, he gives like, you give a 20 minute speech, basically saying, I'm a nice guy, I'm all American, I love da 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 da. He talked about his friends, his friends, his friends, his friends. Like that's the entire point of what Kavanaugh had to do yesterday. Mm -hmm. Has all of his like backers like, yeah, he's great, he's great, he's great, great. And then it's like, you looked at the father of a child who died at Parkland and gave them a look that, like, if I did that at brunch, y'all would be like, shade, mm -hmm. shade on the place. So mm -hmm. interesting, interesting. And that played all out. And then we had Zena Bash, speaking of supporters. Yeah. Sitting, so this is one of those. I missed that one. That was right when I decided to go, I'm going to. Well, this is one of those things. Again, multiple steps to the story, mm -hmm. right? And basically what you had was somebody screenshot a moment. Zena Bash is sitting there kind of holding, let me see if I can do it, kind of arm like this. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people were like, that is a white supremacy sign, which again, also the okay sign, also the circle game, made you look. Oh. Um, <laughs> but like this is, so that like kind of took over mm -hmm. the timeline. I saw a lot of people with verified check marks, retweeting it, sharing it. Um, and this is one of those things, fake news, knows no boundaries, knows no allegiance, all right? This is one of those stories that everyone started sharing. And the fact of the matter is, is that Zena, she is Jewish, she is Mexican, they have come out very hard against the statement and um, basically saying that it is fake news. Mm -hmm. We have a tweet here from Pix Maven. Okay, real question. How often can we say, how often can we not say there was so much news? Light news cycles are few and far between. I agree. And to that point with Zena Bash, I think it's when there's so much going on, right? We have a confirmation hearing and that was going on all day yesterday. Woodward's book dropped like a and bomb. And we're going to get into that in a minute. <laughs> out of nowhere. So report, Rahm Emanuel, all of this is happening at the same time, which means re reporters with dedicated beats are like churning away, the timeline is racing, and then there's a moment like that on live TV, and, and you're like, it's just, it creates chaos and a lot of misinformation. We say it on this show yeah. all the time, check. 
Check before you retweet. Always be sure that you kind of know the full story. And the fact of the matter is, is that the alt-right has worked very hard for years to make these symbols stand for these things. They're waiting for these kinds they of They love these moments. Yeah. When something like that happens and gets everyone all shooken up, that is what they live for. So I'm just gonna, all right, I'm, I'm taking it back. A-okay, that's what that single means to me, okay. all right? Okay. Or this is just holding your damn arm. Okay. All right, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, and follow BuzzFeed News reporter Jane Litvinenko. She covers these hoaxes. Good, reliable source. So let's go live right now to the wild, crazy, confusing district with BuzzFeed News White House correspondent Tarini Party. Tarini, good morning. Good morning, guys. Because <laughs> good mean good anymore. Uh, <laughs> what was yesterday like for you as a reporter? Oh, you know, just another day in D.C., moving from one crazy thing to the next. It's pretty much the norm these days. Pretty much the norm these days. Well, let's get right into it with Kavanaugh. Has today's hearing uh, started off with as many fireworks or costumes and protests as yesterday? So the hearing today is just getting started, and uh, I think there have been some protests, but we, we don't know much about that just yet. But, you know, yesterday we saw obviously a lot of fireworks right from the get-go. We saw Democrats trying to delay the hearing, and then we saw a lot of protesters both inside and outside um, really getting started. Uh, we saw, you know, protesters outside dressed in costumes, um, the Handmaid's Tale costume, and we saw uh, protesters inside interrupting every few minutes right when the hearing got started. Mm -hmm. And let's discuss the essential showdown uh, between the Democratic senators like Kamala Harris and others and Blumenthal and, and, and Grassley, because it, as we know, as we discussed with Chris Geidner, like that was kind of the make or break moment for Democrats in terms of taking a stand. Who came out on top? So, I mean, the Democrats came in with a strategy. They wanted to try to delay this hearing. And ultimately, Chuck Grassley is uh, in charge of that committee, committee hearing. He is in the majority uh, as Republicans control the Senate. And he was able to keep the hearing going. Uh, but I think Democrats were able to show that they did try to make an effort to, de to, to delay this hearing, to try to appease their base that really wants to block Kavanaugh's confirmation. Okay, um, I, I just wanted to ask, uh, what was significant, and Saeed had mentioned before, you had all these people kind of making statements on Kavanaugh's behalf. Did anything uh, significant come out of that? So I think the, the purpose of those statements is just to try to show uh, people who've worked with Kavanaugh, people who know him personally, to show him, as Saeed was saying earlier, you know, the purpose of yesterday was to show that he is a nice guy, uh, that he, you know, coaches his kids' teams. He is the sort of carpool dad image. Uh, and that's kind of what those statements were meant to sort of add to. Okay, and we want to talk about um, Senator Kyle in a moment because that's an interesting part of this puzzle as well. But, you know, day two, um, they're back at it again. Um, how's it going in some? Like, what's the big picture at this point? It with uh, right now, there's not much that's going on. I mean, right now we're going to see uh, the the Democrats basically try to set the table yesterday in terms of the issues that they're going to bring up in terms of abortion, Roe v. Wade, um, you know, gun control, things like that. And we'll see some of those topics come up as uh, Democrats uh, question Kavanaugh. All right, and a big moment again, like we were talking about with Fred Gutenberg yesterday. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be important to see how that conversation goes down today. I did want to ask Trini, uh, John Kyle, who is he, and and what what is his relation with Kavanaugh? 
So John Kyle is a uh, former Arizona senator. He's, he was in Congress for nearly 30 years. He has since been on K Street. He's been a lobbyist. Uh, but on the side, he's been sort of working with Kavanaugh. It's known as uh, the Sherpa role uh, for the Supreme Court uh, nominee. He basically guides uh, the nominee through Capitol Hill, taking him to different offices, connecting him with the senators who are on the Judiciary Committee. So basically guiding him. And now we saw yesterday that uh, Governor Doug Ducey of Arizona appointed him to uh, Senator McCain's uh, old seat, which means that uh, Republicans will now have John Kyle, whose job it was to sort of Sherpa the nominee around, actually voting on the confirmation of this nominee. Gee, I wonder how that one will work out. Well, listen, uh, because that's not the only hearing in town. Just because everything's uh, happening today, Jack Dorsey is testifying on the Hill along with Sheryl Sandberg. Here's a tweet from Will Sommer. Today's congressional hearings on social media could be wild. Alex Jones claims he'll be in front row. Laura Loomer is in D.C. And Chuck Johnson, banned from Twitter, says he has something planned. Tarini, I know they're just getting started, but any news on that front? So, so far, we know that InfoWars' Alex Jones is outside the committee hearing. That's what our reporter, in, who is inside the room, Ryan Mack, uh, has been tweeting. Uh, but so far, no substance updates um, to report yet. Okay. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. Well, well, here's a tweet from the president. Isn't it a shame that someone can write an article or book, totally make up stories, and form a picture of a person that is literally the exact opposite of the fact, and get away with it without any retribution or cost. Don't know why Washington politicians don't change libel laws. <laughs> okay, obviously. That's a weird question mark. Uh, <laughs> obviously Trump knows about Bob Woodward's new fear. I don't know what to say with Trump's rhetorical questions at this point, except like, girl, duh. Uh, now, Tarini, uh, we're seeing a lot of details out of it. I thought it's interesting to see Trump's thoughts on Twitter, for example. Uh, what anecdote from Bob Woodward's new book has stood out most to you so far? So I think the overall uh, point of the book is to show the extent to which the president's closest advi advisors go to keep him from doing certain things. And, uh, you know, there are several anecdotes related to that, one of them being, um, you know, certain uh, top aides swiping documents off of the president's desk, uh, things that they didn't want him to see, things that they thought that he could uh, sort of do uh, some damage to in terms of certain issues, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, board, the war in Afghanistan or um, certain military actions. They were keeping certain information from him. Um, there was also a detail about uh, the president's response to the, the Charlottesville uh, violence and uh, the president basically saying that he shouldn't have come out and given that second statement in which he, um, you know, tries to apologize uh, for his previous statement. Um, he basically said he shouldn't have apologized at all. So that was interesting. The third thing that I thought um, was very revealing was uh, this sort of mock session that is described in the book that the president uh, had with his lawyers in terms of, um, you know, pretending that this was the testimony that he would be giving to Robert Mueller. Um, that was revealing because, uh, it, as it's described in the book, the president essentially lied on several different occasions. And that's kind of when the president's lawyers decided that, you know, maybe it's not such a good idea for the president to be uh, testifying on this. Yeah, maybe not. Uh, and I feel like we're going to see more and more, you know, this has a very fire and fury feel to it. We're going to be seeing more and more coming out from this book. Can I ask, Trini, has the White House given any reaction thus far other than the president's tweets? 
So the White House was pretty slow to respond on this yesterday. This was a book that they knew was coming out, uh, but it seemed like they were still not prepared for it. They waited four hours after the initial excerpts went out, after the Washington Post story uh, came out, to put out um, their initial statements. Sarah Sanders basically said this was, um, this was a fabricated book based on uh, some stories that disgruntled, disgruntled former employees made up. Um, John Kelly essentially reiterated a statement um, he gave earlier in the year saying he never called the president an idiot. Um, but, you know, other than that, they weren't really responding to specific anecdotes in the book. This was just kind of a another way to try to brush it, as, brush it aside. But this book is going to be pretty hard to ignore for both the president and uh, top aides who are mentioned in this book. Trini, I'm fascinated. It, it feels very different for me uh, watching a presidential administration being driven in some ways by political books that come out, you know, in, in the contemporary term. I just don't remember having, like, entire news cycles driven. So we've got, like, Michael Wolf and then Omarosa, and now we have Bob Woodward. Mm-hmm. Um, is this, is this book going to kind of stick in, in a different way? And, and if so, Why? Yeah, so publishers, I guess, are making money again, uh, thanks to the president and all these tell-all books. But I think this book is a little bit different just because uh, Bob Woodward has written books about several different presidents of both parties. He is someone who the president himself has um, said that he thinks uh, he thinks of him as a fair journalist. Um, in the in the call that um, the the Washington Post put out audio and transcript of a call Bob Woodward had with the president, in which the president asks. To be interviewed. He says, you know, I always thought you were fair. I wanted to be interviewed. Why was I not interviewed? I mean, it just shows that even someone like the president, who is now attacking uh, Bob Woodward, at one point thought he was fair, at one point wanted to be interviewed. Um, So I think it just makes it harder for the White House to completely ignore this. You know, for um, the Omarosa book, they could say that she was a disgruntled employee making things up. Um, They could talk about Michael Wolff's book more easily because it had a lot of actual factual inaccuracies that were pretty easy to prove. In this case, Bob Woodward is a very careful, renowned journalist, so it's going to be much harder for them to make that case. And, And just one more question. I got a tweet just a second ago from Rachel Head Girlfield. I love your take on this. She asked, how were they not prepared? How was the White House not prepared? Bob Woodward called Trump himself and told him what he was doing. I mean, that is the big question right now. But I think um, the reason in part for that is that the communications office for the White House um, was is basically at this point non-existent in some ways. I mean, there's it's they've been so worried about leaks that a lot of people have been either transferred to different parts of the administration. A lot of people have left. Um, there's so much news that happens constantly that they have to um, try to deal with that they sometimes can't deal with things that are, you know, two weeks ahead or three weeks weeks ahead, and I think this was one of those um, situations. I think they also just had no idea what the book was going to say and didn't know how to prep for a response to that. But I think the other uh, big question here right now also is that I think it depends on what the president thinks, right? So um, he is ultimately the communications, um, the you know, the communications whiz of this of this White House, or so he likes to think of himself. And they have to sort of wait on him to see if is he going to attack this book? How is he going to respond? Um, and I think in, to that point, the, the transcript that I mentioned that was released was, was very telling because it showed how there's really not 
not a process left in the White House. The president says, you know, why didn't you interview me? Bob Woodward goes on to say, I went to the, the Raj Shah, you know, the deputy pr uh, press secretary. I went to Kellyanne Conway. I went to all these different people. But the president basically says, oh, they never told me. You should have just called my executive assistant. So he's <laughs> acknowledging that the process doesn't really exist. Wow. You can't blame it on the PR team when you're the head of PR. Well, Tarini, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. All right, well, listen, up next, we'll get into Ayanna Presley's upset primary victory Woo! in Massachusetts, which was amazing. But first, it's time for Fire Tweets. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Fire! Fire! All right, we have a tweet here from Sini Martinez. Uh, nothing like pre-autumnal light in New York, even if there was a 100 degree heat index. I didn't know there was, I mean, I knew it was hot today, but. Mm. Yeah. I'm telling you, man, I'm mad. I came back from San Francisco. It was all nice and like 70 degrees. Mm -hmm. It was jacket. I, I, I may mention it on the show yesterday. I bought a nice jacket mm -hmm. and keep plugging this jacket until I wear it on the show. Keep talking about it. And New York is hot, hot, hot. Yeah. Can I say this? Can I say this? Because I, I know people. I don't know. People keep saying it's not autumn yet. It's not fall. It's mm. not da 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 da. And I'm like, it is. This is the reality of global climate change. Hey, no, hang on. I need to fact check you on that. The equinox is September 23rd Girl, you can this talk year. About that equinox, all you want. All right, I know you got a equinox. Whatever. The heck. I'm getting in these fire tweets. Speaking of hot, Andrew, you tweeted. Netflix should have a you're watching this as a couple safety lock where once on where once put on the couple list you and your partner have to press play on your phone simultaneously like nuclear keys in order to watch it. Yes. Listen, here's the here's the thing. I literally texted Alice four days ago. Mm -hmm. Hey, Alice is my fiance for those that are not familiar. Uh, can I watch Mindhunters without you? She hasn't gotten back to me. Mindhunters is really good. I'm, I'm stuck here now. Why? Because I'm a, I'm a good partner. I'm a good partner, so I'm not just jumping out here. That said, I, I was going to say, I feel like people would just create different Netflix accounts. Yeah. That's what would happen. Or just be single. All <laughs> right. right. Okay, you, Alice, you salty. You Alice, salty dog. <laughs> but I could, I've already watched all of mine. All right, all so right. So who's winning? All right, this tweet comes from Molly. I wonder who is laughing at me harder when I pack my bag for vacation, my workout clothes or my book. Ooh, Dang. That's real. Dang. I got to say, shout out to some of my friends. I went to Provincetown earlier this summer for 4th of July and uh, they were working out every morning. And I was on the couch tweeting like, these bitches are out here working out, child. I can't believe. I'll say this. I get my books read. All right. I mean, I'm, the airport, like that always works out. But what I always do is I pack a pair of running shoes. Oh, you do? Mm -hmm. That's funny. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And we'll just leave it at that. All right, here we go. Hasma and you tweeted, I'll never forget the time a girl in primary school found out her uncle went to prison from the newspapers you put on the tables in art. That? That's not a fire tweet. That's a short story. That's, that's heartbreaking. That is, uh... I need to know more. Yeah, I want to know, are there follow-up tweets? Yeah, when did this happen? Tweet. Maybe he did follow up. That is just... Uh, oof, our thoughts are with you, young lady. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, um, Sam Biederman. When I was a 19-year-old PR intern, my boss told me, you give great phone. 
I think about it literally every time I put a receiver to my ear, and it has ruined my life. Yeah, that's creepy. That's super weird. That's... And I've been... Yeah. You've said that? No, I've been told I give good email, and it's really... Yeah. I feel like it was something in the mid-2000s, which you look back on it, you're like... Let's just let that go. Just let let that go. go. Here we go. Raylan, you tweeted, white people love to say, we came at the right time when the line gets really long behind them in a restaurant. And that is the truth. Well, here's the thing. I'm going to push back on this, or maybe I've just spent too much time with you, because I definitely say that often. Oh, okay. You know, I'm willing to transparency. Everything and just white people doing it. But maybe, you know, it's an acquired... I like that you're like, maybe I'm just hanging out too much with you. Self-awareness. Okay, the day comes from... <laughs> Come on. It's only Wednesday. Woke with Petty, our tweet of the day. Let's do okay. it. <laughs> Jesus. 1999. If I tell anyone on the internet my real first name, they'll murder me. 2018. If I blur out the last four digits of my zip code, this thought pick with my passport is probably fine to post. Ooh. It's too fine. real. It's fine. Too real. I've yeah. done. I've, I've definitely. Oh, look at my old license. And you just you think you're blacking it out. That's yeah. Tip: If y'all gonna be out here putting thought pics on Instagram, you need to be more careful with your geotagging. Oh, just facts. Just use facts. You can use. Well, listen. Coming up later in the show, Saeed is talking to DeRay McKesson. But up next, and I'm so excited about that book. Up next, it's still a Good Morning Twitter. We got a lot more there's news more? to get through. There, oh, there's heaps and heaps more. <laughs> heaps and heaps more. It is still a good morning, Twitter, and producer Dick Wolf is making a new show, Law & Order Hate Crimes. Here's what uh, Wolf had to say about his new show. 20 years ago, when Special Victims Unit, 20 years ago, began, uh, very few people felt comfortable coming forward and reporting these crimes, but when you bring the stories into people's living rooms with characters as empathetic as Olivia Benson, a real dialogue can begin. That's what I hope we can do with this new show in a world where hate crimes have reached an egregious level. And Saeed, I wanted to highlight this tweet from you Law and order, hate crimes. And you gotta watch the whole gif. Watch that whole gif. Uh-huh. Watch it, let's just, yeah, let mm, it go. it's so good. Now, Saeed, <laughs> walk me through your feelings as presented by Urkel's face oh, here. Oh, you know, it's like, ooh, interesting. <laughs> oh, no, will it be good? Is this triggering? Oh, what if it, oh, but it could be. Oh, and then again, oh, I do like Olivia Benson. Oh, ooh, oh, yeah. It's the whole, that's it, me. That was really that good, is, that was really beautiful. That was literally, that, just, that's me looking at my phone. When I want you to know that that came across. <laughs> it really worked. It was a really beautiful moment. Yeah. So, yeah, wh- I mean, what do we make of this? That, I mean, I I will say this, like I have a lot of confusing feelings and what I've been thinking is that, as he notes, Special Victims Unit, 20 years later, I think we call that a success. And I think it's fair to say in many ways, not just the character Olivia Benson, but the the cultural impact of the show, right? Like I remember when Special Victims Unit started. I remember watching it with my mom in the evenings and it was the first time I was watching and and then kind of having conversations about sexual assault in my household. And that was radical and everything, right? So, and you know, if they were like, we're gonna do a show about that now, we'd be like, what, you know, so, I'm willing to at least watch it and then a few times and see where it goes and see how they're gonna do. It. Like, listen, Dick Wolf makes hits. That's what he does. Good at what he does. Um, and I do. We like you were just mentioning. I feel like they've, a lot of students have come forward and been like, "SVU is how I learned about assault and all this stuff." Because they talk literally ripped from the headlines. They're that said, it's a stuff. very 
very sensitive, like, especially like you said, could this be triggering? Like the idea of like a different uh -huh. hate crime every week. SVU is Special Victims Unit. It's uh -huh. focused on the unit. This is just like hate crimes, not uh -huh. hate crimes unit. It's gonna be interesting. Um, where my mind kind of second or third went was casting. Who would you cast mm. in Law and Order hate crimes? I got this. Okay. Tachina Arnold from Martin and where and everybody Ooh. hates Chris. She's a wonderful comedic actress. I think she would actually be very good in, in a like more serious role. I, I like that. So her, her. The other thing I was thinking I'll say, say quickly is I saw someone tweet like, um, how are you gonna talk about hate crimes and everything like that where often cops are perhaps the villain mm. in, in those scenarios. I would like to see a law and order that kind of leans into that a little bit. I mean, maybe more. they take that on and that right. would be super fascinating. Right. I just want Ice-T to do some crossovers, that's yeah. all. Yeah. Well, they have to do a Charlottesville episode. Anyway, uh, Twitter, what do you have to say? Will you watch Law & Order Hate Crimes? Give it a chance. Ooh, let us know using the hashtag AM2. Dun dun. <laughs> Ooh, that felt good. <laughs> that was ah, that felt that good. Was <laughs> Context aside, I really enjoyed it. Okay, uh, I've seen your tweets about this. Are we talking about Ayanna Presley? Yes, we are right now. Her stunning victory last night in Massachusetts got everyone's attention, but perhaps at the last minute. Washington Post reporter Dave Weigel tweeted, in the end, Presley will win Massachusetts 7th District by 18 points. No poll showed her beating Capiano. As said Wesley of the New York Times noted, can you believe, I'm sorry, 18 points. 18 I just, points. 18 is points is wild. Yeah. Your friendly reminder that Ayanna Presley will now become first minority to ever represent Massachusetts in the House, and the Congressional Black Caucus Pack endorsed her opponent. Mm. We remember that. I remember yeah. she was on the show and we yeah. had, she had a whole conversation with David Mack about that dynamic. Well, BuzzFeed News politics reporter Darren Sand joins us now to talk about her win. Darren, good morning. Hey guys, good morning. Welcome back, Isaac. Oh, thanks, Darren. Look Appreciate that. that. Look at that. Also, you look very good in that muted gray, I've got to say. Um, okay, so to start, uh, <laughs> what's up with the disconnect between polls um, that you we've pointed to and last night's uh, results? Yeah, um, this, it's a clear disconnect, right? Um, I think that um, polls are having a hard time um, quantifying how to, you know, poll young people of color um, in the in these elections. I think, you know, what we saw in, in the Andrew Gillum race too is that what their campaign was really good about was saying, "Don't listen to the polls." Um, and so, I don't think that was as much of a issue in Ayanna Presley's race. Um, where she won by, you know, a, a very huge margin. But um, the other thing is is that, you know, campaigns have to get good at telling their people not to listen to these polls. But, you know, the the, um, the other thing that you can't sort of uh, divorce from this, this idea is that people could be sort of, um, you know, polling one way and going into the election um, booth and, and making a different decision. So who knows, right? Um, we saw this with the 2016 election, but I think it's something that um, we're going to continue to sort of try and iron out before um, these elections come up in 2018 and 2020. Yeah, I think I think that's really interesting, right? It's showing maybe that 2016 wasn't such a fluke. Uh, let's talk, though, uh, kind of get into the micro level. What does this mean for Massachusetts? Um, it's, it's, it's huge. Um, being from Boston, you know, um, Ayanna Presley came along at a time where there weren't a lot of people sort of emerging, um, from that generation. Um, there was this, uh, sort of a, a, a this culture of wait your turn, um, wait and see what's going to happen with the tea leaves in terms of who leaves office and when. Um, and so it's a very interesting, um, thing that's happened with, you know, a relatively young woman. 
um, rising up and and defeating an incumbent who who was thought to be, um, you know, unbeatable. He's a 66 year old guy. Um, he was someone who um, sort of one of the standard bearers of the party um, in in Massachusetts. Um, and you know, we, you saw in 2014 um, with the emergence of Seth Moulton, who is a friend of the show. Um, he's someone who you know came along in this, much in the same way that Ayana did. Uh, he she um, didn't ask to wait her turn. She she beat an entrenched incumbent, someone who was popular among voters. Um, and the thing that you really can't discount too is the amount of people who are going to go. Um, into the election with the idea that they want to give young people a chance. And I think that those are folks who always are going to be a factor when you have a generational gap in these elections. And so I think that's part of what happened too. And it's it's absolutely huge just to answer your question um, for Massachusetts politics in general. Um, I was struck when she was on set and, and, and reading and watching videos of her by Anna Presley saying two things. Change can't wait. Mm-hmm. I think that's an incredibly powerful uh, phrasing. And also that people closest to the pain should be in power. Um, pretty radical statement. So what does this now mean for the Democratic Party, especially people who, as you've mentioned, have been saying it's not your turn, you and people like Ocasio-Cortez need to wait. How do they reconcile the fact that, hey, th- this is increasingly becoming a bit of a trend? Yeah, I think the the important thing about the two of them is that people always want to make this comparison. Well, are they were the races alike or were they not alike? And I think that's kind of a you know a, a, a pointless discussion. I think the 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 point about the both of them is that they speak the language of the activist left, and they understand um, intersectionality, and they understand how people are making sense out of what the world is going through. Um, and so I think what that basically means is that Democrats have to step aside and give these people an opportunity to lead. You know, I, I spoke with Ayana um, in this very office, um, you know, not long ago. And her point about the seat was that it was not being used to advance people's um, problems and people's struggles. And it wasn't being used to do anything. And she had this moment of frustrations interview and she was like, you know, lead. Um, and so that's something that I think she understands intimately. And I think um, we're going to see, I think, a, a real sea change in terms of how, um, you know, how office, you know, office is looked at as sort of um, a vehicle to advance people's um, people's problems. People's problems. Uh, Darren, I want to ask, have you spoken with anyone on, on the Black Caucus or um, have you heard anything about the Black Caucus back? And how are they feeling after Presley's win? Well, I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, Isaac, I think, you know, there are lots of people in the Black Caucus who wanted to see her uh, win. Um, the, 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 the Political Action Committee with the CBC itself um, had a board vote, and it was not unanimous, by the way. Um, their board vote is made up of members, it's made up of lobbyists, you know, folks like that, activists. Um, and it wasn't a unanimous vote. Um, for Mike Capuano. And so there were people who supported her um, from the CBC PAC. I have asked to speak with members, lawmakers in the CBC. Um, I know for a fact that there are people who are very happy this morning, um, you know, that she won. And so, you know, I think what we're going to see with that is um, a level of acceptance. You know, if, if you're being honest with yourself, at a lawmaker or someone who might have wanted to see Mike Capuano stay in office, it was Ayanna's time. 
And, you know, you know, she said it herself um, in, in several interviews that she's not a newbie and, and, and she's someone who understands politics. She understands how to advance issues and she understands just the way you have to maneuver. Um, and so I think it was just her time. And, and, and I don't think that anyone can, um, you know, discount that in this conversation. Absolutely. I have a tweet here from uh, Rachel Hood Girlfield, who voted in that race. It helped for this voter that uh, Attorney General Maura Healey endorsed Presley. But, of course, that was not the only political news yesterday outside <laughs> of D.C. that had the timeline shook. We got to talk about Chicago. Here's a tweet from the wonderful writer, activist, Marvel Comics writer, mm. Eve Ewing. Oh, my gosh. Hallelujah. Praise Black Jesus. All right. Put another way. <laughs> Chicago Sun-Times reporter Rachel Hinton tweeted, Mayor Rahm Emanuel is speaking now. Quote, time has come to make another tough choice. He will not seek re-election. So, Darren, you've reported on Rahm Emanuel. Why isn't he seeking re-election? Well, he explained um, in, in, his, in his comments yesterday that it was a personal decision for him. I think um, he, he talked about how he'd made you know, all sorts of sacrifices um, for his family. And I think he was feeling a little wistful. I think he dropped one of his kids off at college. And um, I think he just sort of made a decision to um, step down. This is a guy who, um, you know, this caught a lot of people by surprise because he's a guy who never has been known to back down from a fight. Um, he actually runs to fights. This is like the sort of like the Rahm Emanuel story. Um, and so I think a lot, it caught a lot of people by surprise. I think what Eve is um, voicing is, is the feeling of lots of activists um, and people who, in Chicago who watched the handling of the Laquan McDonald, um, you know, video, um, watched Rom sort of struggle through a, a period of time where, um, you know, he and activists weren't seeing eye to eye and there were protests, you know, down um, Michigan Avenue in, in, in Chicago. And so I think that um, it, it comes at an interesting time. It'll be interesting to see what happens as a result, but I don't think Rahm's story is over. And I think that um, it'll be interesting to see how, um, you know, the activists turn that energy into trying to elect someone um, who they want. We've already seen this um, in, 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 in Illinois with, um, you know, the, the, the prosecutor that they elected. So I, I think it's very interesting and, and we'll see how, you know, that, that all works out. Absolutely. I mean, I, I just I'm, I can't forget the fact that like Chance the Rapper is like calling out Rahm Emanuel by name right on his like recent single. And as you mentioned, plenty of activists have been very vocal uh, for years now about their frustration with Rahm Emanuel. So where do we go now? Do we have any idea? I know this is very sudden, but any idea of who could be at least a contender for the, the mayor of the third largest city in the United States? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, right? Said, I mean, you, no one I don't think was really expecting this. People who say, "Well, I saw this coming," um, I think are sort of lying to themselves. Um, and, and I don't think there is someone out there um, in the political space in Chicago who immediately comes to mind and says, "You know, that's that's the person. That's the next um, mayor of Chicago." I think um, there are all sorts of names being floated right now. I think, and those are all interesting. But I think two of the you know, national names that are always going to, I think, um, you know, make people intrigued. I want to talk about this more. Um, former Education Secretary Arne Duncan, um, obviously a Obama guy, um, a Chicago guy, someone who's um, been, you know, a part of the city and a part of sort of the Obama story of, of the last you know, 10 or whatever it is years. 
Um, and he could run on the idea of sort of reforming Chicago schools. This is one of the big, like, you know, problems with Rahm Emanuel. He oversaw some of the largest school closing, the largest school closing, I believe, um, in the history of the city. Um, you know, it's tough decisions that he had to make. Um, the other name that's also intriguing is Valerie Jarrett. Who knows if she wants to do that, right? But I think she's an interesting name. She's someone who um, voters, you know, sort of immediately be able to identify. Um, and so that's an open conversation. And I don't, I don't want to speculate. I don't want to, you know, put too many names out there because um, I think there are people currently, right, even, you know, around calling and, and figure out what their path might be and, and, and how many donors they can get. And so it's very early in that conversation. I think anyone really expected this right now. Um, so yeah, we'll, 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 uh, we'll keep watching that. I'll, I'll come back on the show and, uh, give you my, um, my forecast. All right. Perfect. Yeah. A lot of people scrambling, but Darren, we, uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, Darren. Sure. Thanks guys. Guys, you have to be following Darren's reporting. If you haven't learned by now, <laughs> he has pretty good instincts in terms of the races and candidates he follows. Um, oh, up next, right after the break, I'm sitting down with DeRay McKesson to discuss his new book on the other side of freedom. Don't go away. Hello, my queens. We're back to AM to DM, or as our next guest likes to say, AM to DeRay McKesson. I'm sitting down <laughs> with the author and activist, of course, and his book is On the Other Side of Freedom. Congratulations. Thank you. It's great to be here. Books everywhere today. The book's a real this thing. This is it, Woo! This is it, darling. Okay, so I'm literally, after the show today, I have one-third of my own book manuscript, okay. and I have to do some book edits. It's real. I uh, wish I had had a, like, it's hard to write a book. It's it's hard it to write like a book. It is, like, not an easy thing. That's yeah. why I'm like, so I see it, I'm like, this is real. Uh -huh. I wrote this. Yeah. What, what, was the, what was the writing process like? I mean, you know, you, in, in 20, let's go to 2014. 2014, you're living your life. You're working in Minneapolis. Um, Michael Brown is killed. Ferguson, and, and you go there, um, and, and we all watched you, and in a way went there with you. Um, and because of Twitter and, and you know the way news works now, it was like you, you instantly were a part of people's lives and conversations. What was it like recounting that experience in the book? You know, in so many ways, it started because I listened to this sermon that was titled, Don't Tell Your Story Too Soon. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget it because it was like such a cool title. Mm -hmm. What he says is sometimes you can tell your story so soon that all you see is the pain, not the purpose. Mm -hmm. And I had this moment of like, if I had written a book three years ago, it would have been about like the pain of protest. It would okay. have been, that's what it would have been play by play. But I got to a point where I was like, what are the lessons I learned, right? Mm -hmm. So when you think about 2014, it's like, there's a chapter in here about the protest. And it's like, what is the purpose of protest? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. I've learned so much about the police that I just like didn't know four okay. years ago. So in writing the essays, it was some more like I had been writing them in my head since the moment I stood in the street. Mm -hmm. Some other ones were like a little more recent. Like I write about my mother leaving. She left when I was three, came back when I was 30. I write about being a gay black man in this space. Like, mm -hmm. I've never written about being a gay black right. man, especially as an activist. So some I like had to really like sit down and grapple with the content for the first time. Mm -hmm. And some it was taking content that I thought about for a long time and putting on paper, but I wanted to share the most important stories to me mm -hmm. and the lessons that I learned. Absolutely. When, when you think back, because I... It, it, it's interesting, like you're learning lessons and, 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 and everything's changing so quickly, but again, people are watching you, right? There was, there was an entire uh, conversation happening around your own kind of transformative experience. So how did you, when you're alone at your desk, writing about this, kind of silence all the voices? How did you focus in? 
I wish I was better at silencing all the voices. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what is real is that I didn't take like a break to write the book, right? Okay. So I was like writing in hotels. I was yeah. writing like, at, I live in Baltimore. I was writing at the house in Baltimore. I, you know, I was writing wherever I was trying mm -hmm. to like get these stories down. And one of the reasons I didn't take a break is that one of the beauties of traveling, especially talking to activists and organizers, is that they always challenge me to think about things differently. Sure. So people like push me and ask me a question. I'm like, oh, that was that. It's like, right. Mm -hmm. So at the end, uh, the, the last chapter in the book is a letter to an activist. And mm -hmm. it's sort of like all the things that I've been pressed on or, or things that I saw when I went to these cities. And I'm like, you know what? I want to put this somewhere. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I get that. Um, you talk about the importance of imagination in activism. And it's interesting. We were just talking earlier about Ayanna Presley and the fact that like people, you know, a lot of trusted, reputed voices, Gillum as well, yeah. you know, say, like there's not a chance and then you couldn't imagine this happening and then it does. Why is imagination so important? Yeah, it's like you can't fight for what you can't imagine, right? Mm -hmm. There's so much of this work. I worry that so much, so often we think about resistance as only tearing down the bad things, mm -hmm. but we know that when the bad things end, we still gotta build something beautiful and good. Mm -hmm. And when we build things, like that's the imaginary work. That's like the the burden of imagination is what we have. So when you see Ayana, when you see Cortez, Ocasio-Cortez, when you see Gillum, it's these people who are like, I know that this is not the best world that we can live in. I know that we can make something better and they like fought for it. You know, I ran for mayor in Baltimore probably because I was like, I know that this isn't the best version of it. Like we we have to be the people on the inside too sometimes who are like building the world that we know our lives deserve. Okay, um, this morning, I, and you probably saw, I, I let people know I was interviewing you and, and I asked for questions. We're gonna talk about the vest. We're gonna talk about I that saw, damn vest I in a second. Um, I just watched this actually. Okay. Yes. So Growth. Don't tell people it smells. <laughs> I drag a, him about this vest all the time. Pet, you know, it needs a yeah, okay. Needs a we'll get you a, a tailor or something. Um, <laughs> someone asked, okay. "How do you, as an activist, evaluate successes and accomplishments?" And I think that's an interesting question for you. Was or is the Black uh, Lives Matter movement a success? So I think about the first way, we stood in the street to bring attention to a crisis that people were gonna ignore. So mm -hmm. if we, if all of us, and I'm one of many people, right. if I hadn't been there, if everybody hadn't been in the street, people would have ignored uh, the death of Mike Brown as if it was just a blip on the radar. Mm -hmm. So so much of the beginning work was about awareness, about saying like there's a problem. We know today that a third of all the people killed by strangers kill by an officer. We know that in California, one in 11 homicides is committed by an officer. So we know things today that we didn't know them, but that okay. was the awareness work. I think the second part of the work is how do we translate that awareness into systemic change, right? Mm -hmm. So what does it look like to go up against, like there's a law in California that says that any investigation of an officer that lasts more than a year uh, can never result in discipline regardless of the finding, right? Or like tell wow. me something that can, tell me something you can buy for more than, for, tell me something you can buy for $300. Uh, a pair of shoes. A pair of shoes. In Florida, to this day, theft over $300 is a felony, and when you become a felon in Florida, you permanently lose the right to vote. Wow. Like, that is like a system. And that's it. Yeah, somebody made that up. Like, imagine, like, stealing a pair of shoes at 18 mm -hmm. and forever losing the right. Like, that's like a wild thing. When people mm -hmm. think about felons, they think about, like, axe murderers, and mm -hmm. it's like, no, you're a felon. You stole a bike at 18, right? Mm -hmm. Like. Mm -hmm. I say all that to say that like some people built this system. So when we say the system is broken and some people say, oh, it's working exactly like it was designed. My takeaway from that is that it was designed. Mm. Like people made this up and because people made it up, we can make something better. So when I think about the second phase of the work is about how do we, 
uh, do a critical analysis of like how mass incarceration became mass, right? How did police, like how did these things become the things they are, the outcome's so bad, and then what can we do at the structural level to dismantle them? Like this is not playing musical chairs with the status quo. We're trying to like reshape the room. Absolutely. Something I was always struck by, and I think I've, we've talked maybe a little bit about it one on one, is, you know, and you alluded to this being a, a gay black man amidst this movement um, and, and, and being very aware of the internal, external kind of dynamics. Um, and I think about women in the black, uh, black Lives Matter movements and, and, and navigating misogyny and sexism, but also trying to show unity. How did you do that? Was there a moment of just real private pain uh, when dealing with the homophobia that was being lobbed at you? I think the hardest moment was when there was this uh, New York Times Magazine profile of me and, and that early, like mm -hmm. in the protest. And that was when most people realized I was gay or found out that I was gay. And the homophobia that day was like, I just didn't get out of bed. Like people were just, it was, I'll never forget it. It was an awful, uh, the, the article is a kind article, but the, it that just brought part, so oh, much. Oh, it was like people were like really wild. Uh, that steeled me in some ways so like I could focus. But there are two things that come to mind. One is that there are a lot of people who are like homophobic but like me. And it's like, I don't want to be like a respite for your hate, right? Like I, like you got it. They're like, I don't like faggots, but I like Yeah, you. they're like, Duray, but like, you work really hard. You're like, I really don't look right? Like, uh, that's not <laughs> that's it. That's not, um, yeah. So really challenging people uh -huh. in those ways. And the second is that there are some people who think that like, no, I just can't have a transformative vision. I can't have a radical vision. Like I can't really, like they, for some reason the idea of like who I love and who I am like prohibits me from mm -hmm. having a care about black people in general and part of our work is to help remind people that we are able to show up in the all of us we should be able to show up in the fullness of who we are every step of the way I think the work to end homophobia uh, is like the work that continues some mm -hmm. of it is like having the conversations mm -hmm. and also mindful that men and women are both homophobic it shows up differently mm -hmm. you know I think about one of the ways that I write about in the book is this notion that now, a lot of gay black men are like accessories, right? You're like a really cool pair of earrings mm -hmm. and a really cool person. Mm -hmm. And the moment that like you become unnecessary to adorn something, you're like discarded, right? Or and, replaced. Like, yeah. yeah, or replaced, right? And like, what does that look like? And how do we start to have like honest conversations about that? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, let's get to the vest. Which cam, can you look at this camera? Okay, I want to do you a favor. I, was, I prayed about this. Rude. I prayed about this. Rude. I want you to, to look into whichever camera would be best. Look over here at Jay, look at one. Jay. I want you to look at the camera and explain to the camera why you wear your vest every day and we'll make a clip. And so now whenever people ask you about your vest, you can just be like, here you go, baby girl. Here's a clip. So uh, we were in the street for 400 days in Ferguson for the first wave of the protests, and people forget uh, that it was a long 400 days. You know, some people think that it was like a long weekend, but it was 400 days. And I say that because, you know, if you ever saw us marching, it wasn't that marching was cool. It was, it was illegal to stand still in August, September, and October 2014. It got cold really quick, and I needed something that I could wear that I would never have to pack, and the best was it. Uh, so if it got too cold, I put a hoodie on under it. If it was not super cold, I just wear it like this. Uh, and I still wear it because because it reminds me that all of the things that we went through were real. So I've had this vest on when I was tear gassed, when I was dragged out of the police department by my ankles, when I was shot at with bullets. Like this is my like grounding piece. And I've been in so many places that I could like forget about what happened. And I never want to forget how fragile freedom is and was for us in those moments. I never thought that the vest would be like a thing for other people, you know, like, I get gifts as vests now, and like, you know, I don't, I, vests are fine. I have an affinity for this one, like this one means something to me, and keeps me grounded in this work and why I do it. And there we have it.
there we have it. DeRay, thank you. Thank you for that. And congratulations, honestly, you, because yeah, yeah. as you mentioned, it's not easy writing a book. And you're finishing your major. And we're going to do it. We're going to do it and keep doing it together. Friends, DeRay's book, The Other Side of Freedom, is out now. You can get it wherever books are sold. And new episodes of Pod Save the People boom, boom. are released on Tuesdays. Up next, more AM to DM. Congratulations, Great to be here. <laughs> Here's a tweet from the FBI. A pair of ruby slippers worn by Judy Garland in the 1939 film The Wizard of Oz and stolen from the actress's namesake museum in Minnesota more than a decade ago have been recovered. I'm so excited. To celebrate this joyous news, I'm joined by BuzzFeed Entertainment reporter Michael Blackman for today's Woman Crush Wednesday, Judy Garland. Let's give it up. Give it up for a queen. Give it up for a queen. Oh my God. I love it. All right, this story is so fun. Yeah. I love I love a good caper. So let's start with the slippers. What happened? When were they stolen? What's the background? Yeah, so it was really interesting. Like basically 13 years ago, uh, in August, like August 25th of 2005. Um, so kind of around the same timeline as today, a mm -hmm. little bit. Um, there was these there were these slippers that were loaned uh, to the Judy Garland Museum uh, in Grand Rapids, uh, Minnesota. And essentially, they were loaned on like a 10 week, over a 10 week period and someone stole them and it they were stolen in like a really crazy way. Like someone like broke through like the back door and like busted the glass. Like <laughs> basically like, it seemed like it was like out of a movie or something like that. They wanted um, those slippers. Yeah, and ever since then, like no one has been able to find them. People like blamed it on the actual museum people who work there. Uh, and yeah, and so they were found yesterday. And how were they found? Like, what, what, when you say they were found, that's like, were yeah. they, like, did somebody just leave them on the FBI's front doorstep? Like, yeah, basically like the milkman or something. Now, um, <laughs> no, so essentially they were found because it was like some crazy sting operation. So basically a year ago, like last summer, someone left like a tip, like saying that they knew where the slippers could be found. So essentially uh, the FBI found out that these people were trying to extort the, the people yeah. <laughs> to extort them. Um, and that's like, they didn't give like a lot of details about it, but that's essentially like how they found it. And I know that like the sting operation was in like Minneapolis, Minnesota, but I think that that's just like the crazy part. Essentially there was like this Bin Laden level sort of there was <laughs> operation a, to find these shoes. There was a slipper sting, a shoe sting. I absolutely right. love it. Listen, Judy Garland, Woman Crush Wednesday, obviously known for her iconic role in Wizard of Oz, but what are some of her other iconic roles? Well. I know that she was like she was like a big MGM star. So like there was uh, Summer Stock where she like sings like the Get Happy song that I think a lot of people know from like uh, jingles and stuff like that. There's the Trolley song from um, Meet Me in St. Louis. Mm. Um, and then of course like one that I'm super excited about is like A Star Is Born. Like I think that that's like one of her like best performances ever, just from a dramatic standpoint and then also just like a singing standpoint. Um, and we know that that's back in the news because Lady Gaga is going to be taking right. on the so, role. Yeah. So A Star Is Born is like I didn't know this. This is the fourth remake of this movie. And yeah. Judy Garland was in the second. Yeah, she was in the second because it was. Yeah, there's like a lot of information I have about that movie and I don't know if I can go into all of it right now. Um, but essentially there was a movie called like What Price Hollywood and that's like 1932. And then A Star Is Born was like really, really closely um, related to that and people thought it was like some sort of like knockoff. Um, so then you have that one and then you have the 1954 version and then you have the Barbara Streisand version and now you have Judy, um, then you have Lady Gaga now coming <laughs> with this version. And Judy Garland's was really interesting because it was like her comeback moment. Um, she was actually supposed to, I don't want to say supposed to, but people thought that she was going to win an Academy Award for Best Actress. And honestly, 
re rewatching the movie, I'm just like, she should she should have gotten it. You know, she, she should have gotten it. it. But like they had like cameras and everything like set up in her bedroom because she had just like given birth. Um, and sadly, she did not win and went to Grace Kelly instead. But you know, boo, we still stand. We yeah, we still do stand. <laughs> I do. I want to bring up this uh, tweet from our coworker Louis Peitzman. Judy Garland was committed to being a gay icon. Was so committed to being a gay icon that she married a gay man and then begot another gay icon who also married a gay man. Why is Judy Garland to you a gay icon? Well, personally, I think she's a gay icon. Like, I mean, my introduction to her was like a lot of people, um, like The Wizard of Oz, like which was a hit, but not what it became like when television became a thing and stuff like that. Um, but it's just like she endured like so much over her lifetime, and she was just like someone who like. Like she, she fought just to like stay here, and like I think that that's like a common theme you see with like gay people. And she was also like, she was also someone who was like accepting of like gay people during mm -hmm. that time. And it's just like what she did give were were like, I hate to phrase it this way, but it was sort of like dregs because she was sort of like someone who was just like I. You know, I, I sing to people, which is just like in like during that time, like you you pretty much take anything that you can get when it comes to like, oh my gosh, this person is like seeing me in some way. So it's just like you know, um, but but for me, like she's a gay icon because of like the campiness and like the silliness, um, and then of course like I, I'm just someone who loves big voiced women singers who can just like command a stage and like yeah so that's why man michael you <laughs> command a stage i absolutely love it there's a lot of fun standing judy garland with you today michael thank you so much for joining us we've got more am to dm up next if you had like a favorite film tweeted, if you are a nosy Parker and love judging people's spending habits, I would highly recommend reading Refinery29's Money Diaries series. Well, we've talked about the Money Diaries series on the show. You know I am a huge fan. And now you can take that nosiness to the next level and even learn how to manage your coins with the book Money Diaries, everything you've ever wanted to know about your finances and everyone else's. Lindsay Stanberry, the author, joins me now. Lindsay, congratulations. Thank this you is so amazing. Much. Thank you. I started the book last night. I already love it. It's Thank so you. good. Thank you. How is the book different than the articles? Because obviously this isn't just a whole book of money diaries. Yeah, it's not all money diaries. Um, so there are new money diaries, really good ones, I think. Um, and then we also brought in financial education. I worked with a team of all-female financial advisors. So we cover everything from why you need an emergency fund to how to fund your 401k um, and a lot of other stuff in between. And then there's a lot of essays and kind of conversations about women and money and why um, we still struggle so much to talk about money. There's an uh, essay from a woman who had breast cancer and no health insurance. I talked to a lesbian couple who are trying to conceive um, but don't have the finances. There's uh, also an essay from a woman who married into a family with a huge amount of wealth, like $60 million or something insane like that, and her experience getting a prenup, which is really interesting. I just read that essay on yeah, the train this morning, and I was kind of like, what? Yeah, <laughs> it really makes you think differently about that kind of fairy tale romance. Yes, for sure. What was the biggest lesson, or one of the biggest lessons you want people to come away from the book with? I think that there's a couple of things. One, I would love for women to start talking more about their finances. That's something that we started with Money Diaries, um, and I wanted to continue with this book. More on like a basic level, everyone should have an emergency fund. 
I worked with this financial advisor, Manish Takor, who's fantastic, and she recommends having at least $2,000, which I totally recognize is a lot of money. But we broke it down, and it breaks down to about $5 a day, which, if you think about, you can probably dig around in your daily spending habits and figure out a way to pull out that $5 and start saving. Well, it's been an interesting summer for you guys because you have obviously this book coming out now, mm -hmm. but a few months ago you had the one money diary that went viral that caused a ton of discussion, obviously, on Twitter. Yes. We covered it on the show. You appeared. Mm -hmm. It was, for those of you who aren't familiar, called A Week in New York City on a $25 an hour and 1000 monthly allowance. So we won't rehash <laughs> that drama. No. I think we've all talked about that <laughs> plenty. But are there is there another entry in this book that you think will incite a similar reaction or any essays that you think are as controversial? As controversial? It'd be kind of hard to really talk, good to be question, right? <laughs> I think it would. Um, we really worked hard to have a wide range of women in the book. Um, and I would like never call out a diarist for being outrageous. Um, I really love the diarists in the book. There are a few that are repeat diarists who have been on the site before, and I went back to them and asked them to do diaries again. There's a woman in LA who's making 26K and living with her family. She's one of my all-time favorites. Um, there's a single mom in Columbus making 60K, um, and she's really cool too. So I don't think that any are super controversial. It's hard to like, you know, it's hard to guess. I, I will say as a frequent Money Diaries reader who also loves reading the comments, <laughs> I, it's hard to predict sometimes what yes. will set people off too. Yes. So it's, I mean, it's hard to know. I it's guess people will have know, to read right? the book. Yeah. And it, there's no comment section in the book. So I know that'll be interesting too. Maybe well, it'll take place on like Amazon or we'll something. We'll have to do it in the Facebook group. <laughs> yeah. Um, so another thing that the section I'm reading right now in the book is where you're talking a lot about talking about money with your significant other with your family. Yeah. Um, what are some ways that women can open this up to a discussion with their significant other? Because I do know people who feel like they can't talk to their significant other about money. Yeah, it can be really hard. Those can be really awkward conversations. One of the things we try to emphasize in the book is that it's okay that it's awkward and you kind of have to embrace that. Um, I really like to think about talking to your partner about money is planning for the future and that's really romantic. So if you kind of take away some of the like nitty gritty dollars and cents and begin like long-term planning, it can make it more, more fun. Um, and then you'll also get more comfortable about having those conversations. You also made a really good point on Twitter. You tweeted, can, you, can we stop using weight loss and dieting metaphors when talking about taking control of our personal finances? Diets suck, budgets are bullshit, both set us up to fail. I thought that was super poignant because sometimes I feel like in my mind I'm not counting calories, but you know, I'm trying to stick to a diet and I'm trying to stick to a budget and it just feels like every aspect of my life is just a little too controlled, right? right? So I don't really like that metaphor either. And one of the things you talk about in the book is how you, instead of going through and budgeting each thing, going through everything you spend and seeing, okay, how much do I make an hour and how much would it take for me to buy this item? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's a really fascinating idea. Um, which is where you calculate what your hourly wage is. Even if you're a salaried employee, you can figure out. I think you take your salary and divide it by 2,000 or something like that. You should buy the book and get the real number. Um, and then you start looking at things in life that you pick up, those impulse purchases, and think about how much it would cost you. So if you're making $30 an hour and you want to buy a throw pillow at West Elm, 
you're going to think, okay, I have to work an hour for that. Do I really want it? I, I don't know. It's interesting. It just kind of makes you pause and think about your spending a little bit more. And the answer might be, yeah, I want that throw pillow. It's going to look really awesome on my sofa, and it's worth that hour of work, which is great. And you mentioned something. Something so is say I'm looking at my budget. You mentioned bringing your own yoga mat instead of paying for it, and that kind of stuck with me because it was like, no, I don't want to work to just not be lazy and exactly. not bring my own yoga mat. It's right? kind of a different way of thinking about it. Whereas I feel like when you look at it from a budgetary perspective, it's like, oh, whatever, it's two dollars, it's three dollars, but those no could add deal. up, right? But those really add up. I think that they really do. I say in the book, I won't ever tell you to buy a latte. I don't want to tell people not to buy the things that they want, but if you begin to think about like, do I really need it? How is it going to impact my spending? How is it going to impact my long-term goals? And I think that there's a lot of emphasis, especially for young women, around saving for retirement, which is super important. We talk about that in the book. But it, that also is really hard to imagine what that's like. So if we shift and think about what are the other long-term goals that we're saving for, like a trip or a house or you know, quitting your job that you don't like. I think that those are really awesome goals and can help make you feel motivated to save. Well, that's just one of a lot of amazing mm -hmm. tips in this book. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me. I have the book right here. Money Diaries is out now and available everywhere books are sold. We'll be right back with more AM to DM. Welcome back. Uh, we've got a tweet here from Cini Martinez. Talking about money with your partner is so difficult because a lot of us have shame around our lack of education on how to spend, save. And I think that, I mean, I think that's true of so many different people. Um, just that idea of like, oh, saving $5 a day, like no one ever taught me that. You Absolutely. know, there were no classes in school that taught me how to do my finances. Um, so it, it, it's a difficult thing to have conversations around. I agree. Um, something that I've been, uh, working on uh, to practice this actually mm -hmm. is uh, practicing with friends. Um, I think a, a good way to start that conversation is to set a goal to go on a vacation with a friend mm. or a group of friends mm. um, because that's going to require okay, the hotel, how is that going to work out? The flight, like you, you kind of have to get, and, and maybe something like, you know, do you want to go on a trip like later this fall? Mm -hmm. Give yourself two or three months, get a conversation going. You love your friends, the stakes are a little less high than like with a, you know, with a romantic partner and, and it makes it normal, I just think. And you can kind of check in, be like, yeah. hey, we're going on that trip and like, mm -hmm. hey, how's the savings mm -hmm. going? And yeah. it can kind of be low key like that. Yeah. I really like that. Yeah. Uh, not well, going to pretend like my feelings aren't hurt that I haven't heard anything about this trip. Um, uh, let's get to their tweets. <laughs> Want to go on a road trip? Oh, man. Yeah, oh, I guess we do have a lot of trips coming up. <laughs> well, after yesterday's truly marathon news day, Jolie says, uh, I can't stand the feeling, I can't stand feeling like America is living in the worst reality TV show ever conceived. Can we get some new line producers? <laughs> oh, that's funny. That is really funny. Jolie, how do you know what a line producer I'm impressed. <laughs> What's the team, Jolie? What's the team, Jolie? Uh, that's, it's true. It's, it, it, Yeah, listen, I Again, I think to your point, you know, they're back. Washington, D.C. is back, and they just hit it really, really hard, and a lot of stuff was going on. Mm -hmm. um, and then you had a, incredible news out of mm -hmm. Massachusetts and Chicago as well. Yeah. So there's just a lot lot happening all at once. Can I share some tea for a second? Some news, some news tea? This is just something I was honestly thinking about yesterday as someone who I love therapy, I love advocating for therapy. We are going into midterm elections and we are going into the 2020 election cycle. It is happening, we have to face it. You know how intense it's going to be. Mm -hmm. If 
News has an impact on your personal life. Now is the time to start looking for a therapist if you don't already have one, because you want to already have an ongoing kind of rhythm and conversation with your therapist before we're deep in whatever is about to happen in the upcoming election seasons. Um, and, and suddenly you're like, oh no, I really want someone to talk to. And so that's my advice to you as someone who started therapy on Inauguration Day, January 2018. Get started now. So mm. you know. I like that you're looking at the camera, but I know you're talking to me. Well, because I know there's a confidence <laughs> monitor there. We asked if you would watch the new show, Law & Order Hate Crimes. Mm. Uh, we got a poll up, so uh, let's bring it up here. Um, most of most of you will not be watching not the new me. show. Okay. Wow, o almost 80%. I said, I, I, I voted. I said, mm -hmm. yeah, I'll watch. I, and then I'll like watch the pilot, mm -hmm. I guess. We'll see. You know, listen, I'm an optimist. I always hope to be surprised. Mm -hmm. It would be really awesome to see if they actually ta tackled mm -hmm. police, police issues. I mean, that's what they do, right? They steal stories from mm -hmm. the headlines, and that's what the headlines are about these days. So I, I'm, I have cautious optimism. Yeah, I do say it's one of those shows that it, 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 there's, it's either going to be excellent, mm. and perhaps like it could become one of the, the most watched, like best shows on television, like if it's really, really good, or it's just gonna be mediocre, we don't need that. Uh, to that point, Princess Slayer says this, uh, I love the original Law & Order, I loved SVU, but mm. I need Dick Wolf to let shits die. SVU ain't even good anymore. That's true, 20 years. Uh, why do we need a whole new show? Good mm. point, good point. I just, a lot of TV out there. I just, we did a whole show. We got through saying Dick Wolf a lot without making any jokes and I just couldn't let it. It's a good I name. I saw you smiling and I, I was like, know, let's go and, let's I want to know an oral uh, history. An oral history, is that his real name? Is it a chosen <laughs> name? You don't stop it. I just want to. Thank you for watching, friends. Thank you to, I can't. DeRay McKesson, Tarini Party, Darren Sands, Michael Blackman, Stephanie McNeil, Lindsay Stanberry. Thank you to everyone but Isaac. Yeah, I am well, thank so you, Dick Wolf. You. Absolutely. We'll see you tomorrow right back here, <laughs> 10 a.m. And we didn't even say it, but your conversation with DeRay, absolutely incredible. Absolutely. Fantastic. Happy for him. We'll see you tomorrow.